Hello and welcome to Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer, a nurse practitioner and serve as the system director for advanced practice providers. Well, today, Amanda and I are excited to welcome back Jeff Griffin to talk more about medical staff leadership. Today, we're going to be discussing credentialing and bylaws. Jeff, welcome back to the program. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Can you tell the audience just a, a, a little bit about yourself, um, who you work for, and what sort of work you do for our medical staff? Absolutely. So I'm a lawyer based in Memphis, Tennessee, with the law firm of Harris Shelton Hanover Walsh. And that law firm um, has a relationship with Baptists that's over 50 years old, um, you know, almost uh, growing up alongside one another, uh, our firm and Baptist as an organization. I primarily practice uh, in the area of healthcare, both in litigation and then also handling uh, medical staff issues, both on the you know compliance side with that, as well as advising on privileging actions, peer review, and that type of thing. Um, I've been in practice since 2000, so this makes my 21st year of practice. Um, and you know, as we said before the call, you know, I need to make sure that I before we get started today that that I notify everybody that you know the opinions that are going to be expressed in this today are my opinions, they're not the opinions of the firm, and they're not the opinions of Baptists. And certainly, uh, if there is a situation that comes up with anyone listening to this personally, you know, every situation is fact-dependent, and so consult a lawyer before you take any action. So, you know, just for the, the medical staff listening, just give, a, give us a, a broad overview. What do we mean when we talk about bylaws? So it's funny, you know, I hear people get confused a lot of times. There's there's actually three sets of medical staff documents that most hospitals have. There's medical staff bylaws, there's rules and regulations, and then there's policies. And I hear often those all get called bylaws, but it's, it's different. And I think understanding the differences between the three is important. So to answer your first question, the medical staff bylaws, what are those? I tell people, if you think about it, like in terms of, uh, you know, other governing documents, the bylaws are almost like the Constitution, right? The bylaws set out what your obligations are as a medical staff member at this hospital and what your rights are as a medical staff member at this hospital. Um, it also addresses other providers who are not members of the medical staff. Um, that and what their obligations and rights are when they have uh, privileges at any of our facilities. Um, in addition to those two core pieces, what the medical staff bylaws will do is set forth different committees of the medical staff, um, what the charge of those committees are, um, what the leadership of those committees are, um, and then for privileging how you become a member, what the competency requirements are in order to become a member of the medical staff, and what are the requirements to be forced to leave the medical staff. And so there's a lot of important information that is in the actual bylaws for any given hospital. Okay, that's great to know um, that there's a, a difference between those and, and rules and regs and, and policies. Can you just describe what's, what's rules and regs and policies? Yeah, so rules and regs, you know, going with that same analogy, you know, if, if one is like the Constitution, then I consider these to be like your state statutes, right? I mean, these govern how you conduct yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. And typical things you might find in rules and regs would be, 
um, how how the hospital is organized relative to departments and specialties. What specialties fall in what department? Um, what are medical record documentation requirements? How often do things have to be documented? Um, you know, where should they be documented? Um, I know recently uh, we just did a rule and reg revision dealing with post-operative notes. Uh, that's an example of something that's in there, that the requirement that one be completed by whom, how quickly after a procedure, that type of thing. Um, the uh, how and, and how often and who makes out the call schedule uh, is in there. Um, and, you know, really just sort of day-to-day operational type issues is what's typically included in, in rules and regs. And, and both of those are um, produced by the medical staff or do any of those come from, I guess, hospital operations? So it differs a little bit from the regional hospitals to the metro hospitals. And what I mean by that is, so each, each of our hospitals that make up um, the unified medical staff, which is here in metropolitan Memphis market, uh, Baptist Memorial Hospital, it's three campuses, women's Memphis and Collierville, Baptist Memorial Hospital, Crittenden over in Arkansas, Baptist Tipton up in Tipton County and Baptist DeSoto each have their own set of rules and regulations that govern the operations on those particular campuses. Um, they can propose, uh, revisions to those rules and regulations, which would then roll up to the MEC for approval and then out to the medical staff for approval. Um, or the bylaws committee, which we discussed in the last epi- episode, sometimes will propose rules and regs changes. Normally, those come up in that body when there's been some regulatory change that requires a change in the rules and regs. And so that's normally when we know we're going to have to change a rule and reg at all the campuses that comes up in there. At the regional hospital, it's a little different because they don't have those different campuses. There's one campus. And so um, on the, in those uh, smaller facilities, often the rules and regs are proposed directly by the medical executive committee and then voted on and adopted by the staff who hold privileges at that particular facility. Okay, so you've covered so bylaws. Yeah, go ahead, Amanda. No, I was, I was going to ask about policies. So how do policies differ from rules and regs? Yeah, so policies, and I was thinking about that this morning, knowing we were going to cover this, how that how it differs. Policies really, in a lot of instances, handle more administrative type issues. Like, for instance, um, here uh, we have a policy on flu vaccination, um, and you know that requires our providers to either be vaccinated for the flu or to demonstrate some exception why they don't have to be vaccinated by the flu. Um, there's a policy relative to peer review. Um, and how peer review is conducted and completed at the different facilities. There's a policy on medical records suspension for not completing medical records timely. So I would put in the policies category things that are more administrative in nature and not really care type issues, not, you know, how, uh, how they conduct their practice, so to speak, would be the difference. Okay. Yeah. And I'm, this came up a lot during the, the COVID vaccine kind of, uh, mandate debate. So the hospital has a, a flu vaccine requirement or a, a COVID vaccine requirement. How does that policy that the hospital have, you know, that may be geared towards its employees filter over to, you know, the medical staff and, and, and you know, do those supersede, you know, medical staff bylaws or, or and their rules and regs or, or how does the, how do those work together? So all of the policies um, that are governed the medical staff 
are adopted by the medical staff. And so, for for instance, using your example, the COVID-19 policy, the hospital um, adopted a policy that applied to its uh, nursing and hospital staff, but the medical staff, because they're self-governing, um, proposed their own policy. And that policy was adopted by the medical staff, and uh, by the MEC first, and then by the medical staff, um, just like all the other policies were. And so um, going back to that item we talked about earlier about them being self-governing, that's the method it's got to take, um, you know, in order to be applicable to the independent medical staff. Okay, interesting. So if the hospital had a policy that you had to wear shoes into the operating room, it wouldn't apply to the medical staff until they had to adopt it in their... Well, I, I won't say that. You know, <laughs> I, I will say that there's certain things um, that, you know, fall beyond that purview. Like, let's say, you know, certain campuses may have policies relative to um, scheduling OR time or something like you're talking about, what is or isn't acceptable to wear on campus. And certainly those things can be imposed by the hospitals themselves. But, you know, the, what, what's normally covered in the medical staff policies are issues that are unique to the medical staff. Another one that's in there is, is uh, access to quality files. That's another thing. I mean, almost all of it is geared directly to physicians themselves. But I think the importance, um, you know, of both the flu vaccine policy and the COVID vaccine policy and the medical staff adopting both of those policies um, is the message that it sends that they're in favor of that and then and they understand it's important and it needs to be done that makes sense mm -hmm. so jeff you talked about revisions to the rules and regs how does a point become adopted as a bylaw okay so let me make sure i understand that question how, how does something make its way into the bylaws that's right so how okay. do we okay. mm -hmm. so with the bylaws Typically, um, the most common route for that would be in the metro area for it to come through the bylaws committee. Um, I will say that there's about two or three different ways that something comes up that notifies us that there's a need for a bylaws change. Um, much like what we talked about with the rules and regs, there could be a regulatory or statutory change um, that requires something to be changed in the bylaws. I think the second most common method is something happens. <laughs> Something happens somewhere in the hospital and somebody says, hey, what is it? What do the bylaws say about that? And the bylaw is silent. To it. Um, and so because the bylaws are silent to it, we don't want it to be silent next time. So we, we put something in there to address the issue when it comes up. You know, otherwise, I guess most bylaw changes, if they don't come through those two vehicles, um, are proposed by the medical staff themselves um, for some reason that they think there's an issue that needs to be dealt with. But I would say the majority of things that get amended and get changed and get added really are more rule and regs and policy type changes. It's rare that we make a bylaws change because the stuff in there is so, uh, I don't want to say basic in nature, but it's just um, a lot of the stuff in there has been the rules of the road for a long time. So, you know, something gets to the bylaws committee as a, a request. They meet, they kind of agree on some verbiage. And then from there, it has to go to the MEC, I guess, for approval. Is that the, the way it would go? That's correct. It would go to the MEC for approval and then be distributed to the medical staff members for a vote. Um, if the medical staff members approve it, 
then then it's just reported back to our medical executive committee that it was approved and then it will go up um you know for final approval at the next board meeting um if it's not approved then it would go back down through the system and either it would be revised based on whatever comments the medical staff had as to why they wouldn't approve it or it would die. So Jeff, how often are the bylaws reviewed and or updated? So joint commission requires um, that we review that stuff on an ongoing basis. And in particular, like the medical staff policies, um, I know there's a two, I believe it's a two year requirement that we review all the policies every two years. That doesn't mean necessarily that there will be um, any changes made to them, but we still have to show that we have reviewed the policies. The bylaws themselves, um, you know, as a lawyer, I probably live in that document more than anyone else does. You know, we like our rules and our verbiage and our words and everything else. Um, but, you know, I think that typically, you know, those are, are reviewed, um, you know, as needed. It's not really a, a concerted effort to uh, review them with any frequency like the policies are required to be reviewed under joint commission. And are you the only one that has read it word for word the entire document? You know, maybe. And, and that assumes I've read it word for word the entire document. But I'll, I'll tell you, I think some people would be interesting to, interested to see what things are covered in there. Um, you know, because I think there's a lot of things in there that people probably are not aware of um, that, you know, are, are there to be seen um, if you read it. In particular, um, I know one issue we have frequently is, is that um, very few people know um, that, you know, if you have a privileging action at another facility, that's something that's required under our bylaws to be reported to us. Um, and that's frequently missed. And the refrain I hear often is, I didn't know it was in there. And I'll tell you that as a, as a side point, you know, any provider who applies for privileges at Baptist signs as part of their application and attestation and the attestation says not only have i read the bylaws rules and regulations and policies that apply here at the hospital but i agree to abide by those bylaws rules and regulations and policies so you know it's not like the little uh apple itunes thing where you say i consent you know i mean there's really some meat to that um when you attest that you've read and you'll comply because not complying with those bylaws can be a reason for uh, your membership to be revoked. And is the same true with with rules and regs? I, kn I know when I was applying for credentials that I uh, I recall exactly what you're saying that I had to sign something of this. But is the rules and regs also tied in with that and the policies? All of it. Yeah, all of the medical staff documents are tied in with that. And um, you know, it's it's important because you know you'll frequently see at facilities providers get denied privileges. Um, because something in the application uh, is not correct. Um, and if the committee members feel that it was put there falsely intentionally, that is grounds to deny an application. So, you know, I, I think it's important, you know, as a lawyer, I'll tell you, always read anything you're going to sign. Um, but, you know, that's something that I'm not sure everybody understands when they're signing through all their documents that they've committed to, because I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example. If you apply for privileges and your privileges are denied, you're entitled to request what's called a fair hearing under our bylaws. And they impanel a, a panel of three physicians um, who will hear why you think the denial was not fair of your privileges. That whole process 
um, is something you agree to at the time that you sign that thing saying you'll apply, you know, you, that you'll comply with the bylaws of the, of the facility. So before you agree to a process, it might be nice to read and see what that process actually is. So, Jeff, you may not know this, and it may be different for every entity, but as revisions are made to the bylaws and rules and regs, how is that communicated to our credential providers? So, when when it's proposed, a while back, um, they actually started requiring as part of the application process that providers provide a good email address for them. And so when bylaw changes are made, when policy changes are made, when rule reg changes are made, um, the first line on that is, is that it's emailed out to the providers for vote and input. Um, understanding how email is that, you know, some people get thousands of emails a day and things get buried. It's also reported at, at the MSLC and MEC level and people can cast votes at that level too. So, we often get here in the metro market a lot of votes that are actually cast at the MSLC meeting um, relative to bylaw changes and things like that. So it's a couple of different mechanisms they use to inform them of the change uh, and then the vote of the change. And then certainly part of the reporting process and the structure with the medical staff is, like we talked about earlier, downward reporting that MEC is reporting stuff to the MS. I shouldn't say downward. I guess it's going both ways. Stuff is reported up to the MEC, but information is also reported down from the MEC. It then goes down to the MSLC and the individual providers at this institution. No, this is all really helpful. Um, and, and so we started touching on credentialing a little bit, and I wanted to get into that a little bit more. And so you said, you know, that somebody can get denied, I guess, after they submitted their credentialing application. What all goes into that process as far as credentialing goes? Um, you know, how do the bylaws factor in? Um, you know, what may cause somebody to to not be credentialed? Can the, can the medical staff just not credential you because, uh, you know, for on a whim? Or does it have to really be a substantial reason for them to to not let you join the staff? So I will start off and say, you know, we have an extremely hard working medical staff services office and Lauren Porter, who's the director of medical staff services here in Metro and Angela Gloss and both work really, really hard on these applications that come in. But it starts off with the application being submitted to their office um, and either they or people who are under their charge then literally go through the application and will confirm education, will confirm training, will confirm work history. Um, in some instances, if you're a proceduralist, to hold privileges to pr practice certain procedures, you have to demonstrate um, that you've done a certain number of cases. They will request case logs um, and information to support those. Um, they check to see if you've got liability insurance. They look at claims history. I mean, really do a thorough job to gather all the information about a provider that anybody would want to look at to determine whether or not um, a physician is, is competent and is going to be a, a quality physician at our facility. Then we also have, and Amanda kind of uh, uh, mentioned this earlier, what's referred to as delineation of privileges. And so when you apply for privileges at the hospital, um, let's say you're going to apply for internal medicine privileges. Um, it literally lays out on the delineation of privileges what the requirements are at our institution to hold that privilege. And so what the credentialing committee is doing 
is looking at the information that the medical staff office has gathered together regarding, you know, the items we touched on, education, work history, uh, prior claims history, that kind of thing. And then also looking to see, do you meet these requirements set forth in the delineation of privileges? Uh, examples why somebody might be denied privileges. Um, maybe you haven't done the required number of cases that are required. Um, we require board certification uh, here in, in the metro market, and I believe in several of our regional facilities, too. Um, if you're not board certified, that can be a reason why you're denied privileges. Um, there are some um, services here in metro and other uh, hospitals um, that are contracted services, and you have to be employed by that particular entity um, in order to even apply for the privilege. So if you're not an employee of that, of that particular entity, um, you don't meet the competency requirements and you, you can't hold the privilege. And then occasionally, um, not often, but occasionally something that's found in the credentialing process, either um, uh, a report that we've gotten from a prior facility um, a report that we've gotten from one of the educational institutions um, concerns the medical staff enough that they feel like this won't be somebody um, that we can grant privileges to and feel good that they're going to provide safe and quality patient care at Baptist. And so you could be denied on that basis as well. So, Tuff, you talked about both credentialing and privileging. Now, you can be granted or you can be credentialed but denied specific privileges. Is that is that correct? That's correct. So the credentialing, you know, you, you they can look and see um, that you have the appropriate training, but there's there's a possibility um, that you might not have um, the training to hold all the privileges, right? So I mean, you know, we we do what's called core privileging here, which means that you know. It's our position that if you are going to practice internal medicine, you're going to do everything that's in the core. And we actually list all the different things that fall under the core on the delineation of privileges. Um, occasionally, we have some people that come in and say, we weren't trained on that, or this isn't something that I know how to do. And so um, certainly, we don't grant privileges to people that can't demonstrate competency in them. And occasionally, uh, you know, as medical staff education changes and evolves, um, we go back and look at those delineation of privileges and say, does it still reflect current educational practices? And if not, they're amended. Um, I know you just did a considerable amount of work on the delineation of privileges for our APPs, which is maybe an area where the education is evolving the most right now. It, it might be the most fluid right now in terms of change um, and the specialization um, of APPs from where they were, you know, even just five, 10 years ago. Um, and what they're doing. And so, yeah, it's possible. Um, I, I guess I should also say it's possible to be a member of our medical staff um, and hold no privileges. Um, you know, there are um, certain categories, um, honorary and emeritus, who some people have practiced here forever. Um, they feel very connected to the institution. They want to stay involved, but they don't plan on seeing any patients here anymore. So there's even a category of privileges for someone like that. No, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and it's really great that you, you pointed out the difference between credentialing and, and privileging. Um, and so, so then every so often you'll have to renew your privileges. Is that correct? It's like every two years. That's right. Joint commission caps it at two years. You can't extend privileges for any longer than that. Okay. And then what's the process and what would cause somebody to lose privileges? Uh, you know, 
again, that can happen for a number of different reasons and it can happen, you know, in a number of different ways. So let's say, for instance, I guess a minor reason or some might not consider it minor, but let's say you didn't um, complete your medical records. Um, eventually, you're going to receive an automatic suspension for that. Um, so you would technically, I guess, lose the right to exercise your privileges while you're under that automatic suspension. Usually, um, that's that's sort of a misdemeanor. You come in, you finish your medical records, and uh, you're back at it and practicing again. Um, you can also lose them administratively. So let's say, you know, we have some competency requirements that you just have to have in order to practice in our hospital. So you have to have a license in whatever state you're practicing in. Um, if you forget to renew your license and your license lapse, you will automatically lose your privileges at Baptist because now you no longer meet that competency requirement. Same thing with liability insurance. We have a requirement that you carry liability insurance if you're going to be on staff. If you forget to make that premium payment and the, the policy lapses, then your privileges will be automatically suspended. And then I guess the third and more serious item would be, you know, there's a, a patient care issue or there's a pattern of patient care issues. Um, you know, if you have a provider who potentially is exhibiting signs that there may be a substance abuse problem, if you have a provider who um, is having a pattern of um, poor patient outcomes, the medical staff could actually take an affirmative action to suspend, revoke, or limit the privileges of someone um, like that. So how, if at all, does the renewal process differ from the initial application process? So the renewal process, all of the same credentialing is done. It's done in the initial appointment process. Um, you know, I always, uh, on the surface, it seems a little redundant to me, but I guess, you know, you can't be too careful with people that are practicing there. Um, I, I think normally on the reappointment process, um, you know, the things that could come up that might change the analysis on a provider is, you know, we do both FPPE, which is focused practice within the first six months of someone being granted privileges. Everybody that's a new appointee gets six months of FPPE, focused practice, professional practice evaluation. Um, and then there's OPPE. And so usually that data is now available at reappointment. So we can actually look at a, a provider's practice patterns at Baptist. Um, and consider that in terms of reappointment. You know, sometimes at the time of initial appointment, um, you know, you, you're limited in what information you have about a provider, but certainly at the time of reappointment, um, you now have personal experience with this individual because they've uh, theoretically been in your hospital and been practicing them and taking care of your patients. Oh, that's great. And I know we want to dive deeper into the peer review process and FPPE and OPPE on our, our next episode. Um, Mandy, I think I cut you off. What, what were you going to ask? No, I was just going to say, and we do this for all credentialed pro providers. And, and can you list that out? We know physicians and advanced practice providers. Are there others? There are. You're going to test my, my memory here. So there's also independent clinical professionals, I believe is the terminology we're using for them now. Uh, and that would include, like, say, uh, podiatrists, dentists, um, uh, you know, you mentioned the APPs, and then there's some providers that actually are not credentialed through the medical staff process. Some of them go through the HR process. Um, I have less involvement with that, so I'm not exactly sure how that process works because I'm not a part of it. 
Um, but I do know that there's not everybody comes through the medical staff credentialing process, depending upon where they fall sort of on the spectrum of providers that practice there. Okay. Can you give Thanks. us an example of that? Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So, and, and Amanda might actually know more about this than I do, but I'm thinking like if let's say there's uh, a doctor who brings in like a surgical assistant with them, um, that might be somebody that gets credentialed through HR as opposed to the medical staff credentialing process. Is that correct? Yes. You know, I also think about like the PIC team or PIC nurses that may be credentialed to do a specialized procedure, but that wouldn't necessarily come through the medical staff. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. Um, Jeff, once again, I think I learned a lot on this episode and I look forward to having you back to talk more about peer review. Um, any, any last words for the medical staff about bylaws and credentialing? Read the bylaws. Read the bylaws. <laughs> and read the bylaws. Uh, so thank, it, thank you everybody for listening to another episode of Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you find the link in the show notes, you can redeem this for CME credit. Thank you.